life is tough, life is raw, it's difficult. There are things that will never go away as scars. And to heal, I think we, we need to be truthful first. And then after we're truthful, then God can help heal. And if not heal, use anything that's happened. I, I look back on my life and I'm, I'm grateful for all of it, every bit of it. I, I really do believe that nothing went wasted. That was Philip Yancey, and this is the Things Above podcast. Philip, welcome to the Things Above podcast. It is so good to have you on. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it, Jim. I have admired your writing for many, many years. The, the back page of Christianity Today and several of your books are just right there on my shelf as important books. But you've written a new book, and it's a memoir. It's titled Where the Light Fell. And toward the end of the, in fact, it's jumping all the way to the end on page 299, you tell the story that after a pretty scary car accident, as you were you, you lay for seven hours strapped to a bodyboard that you reviewed your life and decided, hey, if I survive this, I am going to write this memoir. And so I ask every author on this question, so why did you write this book? <laughs> I've been deeply affected by the author Frederick Buechner, who I'm sure you oh, know. Oh, I, I got to meet him once. Excellent. Oh, Excellent. Yeah. And uh, we had a friendship over the years. He stayed at our home. And oh, his wow. whole theme that he comes back to again and again is listen to your life. That right. Really, that's, that's all a writer has. I have a perspective, an upbringing, a viewpoint that's different than yours, that's different than anybody else's in the world. And that's really all I've got. So listen to it very carefully. I didn't know when I was growing up that I had a story, really. But only later, as I started talking to other people, did I realize, actually, I had a I had a pretty different story than most people, uh, an unusual family, a very unusual church situation. And I wanted to capture, uh, partly I wanted to capture a subculture, a moment of time when I lived in the South, just as the civil rights movement was getting underway and changing things a lot. And also a time when Evangelical Protestantism was on the ascendancy. A lot of organizations were forming, parachurch organizations. Billy Graham was at his height. Every time he stepped into a stadium, it would fill with 100,000 people, how many people the stadium would hold. So I, I was part of a subculture that is changing a lot, and I wanted to capture that moment. And there are a lot of people, in fact, Jim, I've heard as many as 25, 30 million people who were raised in something like that subculture, the evangelical hmm. subculture, who have ditched it. They're called ex-evangelicals or ex-evangelicals. Ah, never heard that term. Yeah. Never. And uh, hmm. I fit that category for a period of time, fairly short period, but then ended up right smack in the middle of it, writing for Christianity Today magazine for years and writing books about the faith perspective of evangelical. So I wanted to uh, trace that story of both capturing the subculture, the good, the bad, the ugly, and then how I emerged from it, through it, in the middle of it, 
because uh, it, I think it should resonate with a lot of people who had a somewhat similar trajectory. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it certainly does. I, my my own journey is, is, is similar in some ways. So there were points at which I was, as I was reading it, going, oh, yeah, I, I know that. I know that version of the gospel. I know that, you know, the, the Christianity with the legalism and the rules and um, and many of the places, of course, that you mentioned, I Wheaton and other places that mm. uh, I've been at as well. So, yeah. Well, you, you begin the book with a section called um, The Family Plot. And, and, of course, that's an incredible play on words. Uh, but the first chapter is called The Secret. And without sharing maybe too many spoilers, tell us about your discovery of The Family Secret and how that impacted you. Sure. I grew up without a father. My father died when I was just 13 months old. And of course I knew about that. Our family was different. It, it only had a mother, not a father. And I quickly found that out in our neighborhood growing up. And I knew that he died of polio. He was held up as this kind of mythic figure. He had a dramatic conversion when he was in the Navy during World War II and changed from a little bit of a, a rogue <laughs> um, to a devout Christian. I still have a Bible marked up in his handwriting of, mm. of people that he helped convert, led to Christ. And they, my mother and father, were planning to go as missionaries to Africa. I knew all of that. What I didn't know until I was 18 years old was this secret I happened to be at my grandparents' house. I had a, a girlfriend with me the first time I was introducing her to my family and she became my wife. We've been married more than 50 years now, but this was the very first introduction to the Yancey family. My grandparents were thrilled that she showed any interest in the Yancey family. So they immediately pulled out scrapbooks and photo albums and started giving her the whole history of the clan. And while we were going through these scrapbooks, a, a yellowed newspaper clipping fell out on the floor and I reached down and picked it up. And it was a picture I had not seen, a picture of a woman who I recognized as a younger version of my mother bending over a hospital bed, feeding my father. Well, that wasn't unusual. He was polio. He had polio, so he was paralyzed and it didn't surprise me at all that she would be feeding him like that. He couldn't move his arms, legs, anything. But the headline of the Atlanta Constitution said that, uh, I don't know the exact headline, but it basically said that against medical advice, this young minister and his wife chose to remove him from the hospital because they trusted that he would be healed. It was a faith healing. And the article goes on to say that my father had uh, about 5,000 people who had agreed to pray for him. These were people who were going to support them as missionaries in prayer or financially. And after two months in an iron lung where he had made minimal progress, if any, then as an act of faith, they removed him from the iron lung. And it was a very upbeat article because my mother was thrilled to have him out of a hospital where she could stay in the same room with him. My father was thrilled to be out of the iron lung. But then I looked at the date and the date was nine days before he died. And I, I realized that this was a huge event in their lives, obviously, 
and yet one that had been kept from my brother and me. We never knew that. So there was a, a twist <laughs> to the plot, to the family plot, as it were, because we had actually been committed uh, by my mother in a scene much like Hannah and Samuel in the Old Testament, where she commits her son. She wanted the son so badly, and then she finally gave him to God. And, and we were given to God in that way as a vow to replace our parents as missionaries in Africa. Uh, we found out about that, but now I realize the, the force, the emotional force behind it, because in a real sense, the people who believed that he would, been, he would be healed at some level probably felt complicit in his death when he died. Mm. Uh, they thought they knew God's will and they were tragically wrong. And I began to see my brother and me as the, I guess you could say, guilt offering. Mm. Um, maybe we could get something, something good out of this tragic circumstance. And you've read the book, so you know that that works itself out in, in some pretty awful ways. Um, but, but that was a moment where we realized, my brother and I realized the intensity of what took place just before he died. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, Philip, I, I, I can't remember the last time I've read a book that was just so gripping. I mean, like I said, I've, I've known you and your, your books for many years, and you have such a light, you know, you're, you're funny, and, and you're funny in this book, too. I mean, there's some really <laughs> funny lines. I've cracked up a bunch, but, but it, there's this, this story that's so gripping. And, you know, as I'm reading, I'm thinking, well, this is book, as it unfolds, it's so much about your mother and your, your brother Marshall and, and you. And that's, that scene about the vow, you know, that, that she makes the, was captivating, but also kind of chilling because that, it, that vow that she makes is going to impact both you and your brother, in some ways, your brother even more so. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so when, when did you discover, or, or was it only in looking back, that the impact that that vow she made would have on both of you? It was in our late teenage years, I think. And, and when we were young, I used to say, yeah, I want to be a missionary in Africa. I love the animals. I'd like to be a missionary veterinarian and take care of the lions mm. and tigers and giraffes and hippopotamuses, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what children think of. And my, my brother rather solemnly as a seven-year-old decided I want to be a missionary in Africa too. So that was, that was the ideal held up for us. And of course, in some families, it's, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor, but in ours, the idea was to replace our parents as missionaries in Africa. And then um, we had other interests as, as teenagers. We were in this rather rigorous fundamentalist church, and we were pulling away from that because, because of a lot of reasons, but it just wasn't reflecting what we knew about the world. It wasn't reflecting who we were. And my brother was interested in music. He had incredible talent as a just an innate musician and pianist. And I think what happened was my mother was felt she was losing the grip over her sons. She had that she had invested a lot. She had invested everything. She swore she would never marry again. She would devote herself to raising her sons to to fulfill this vow. And it didn't look like mm -hmm. we were going to. And she became more and more shrill 
and I, I guess I would say unbalanced, maybe even unhinged. And uh, that scene it later worked into a kind of curse that she put on my brother when he was going a different direction. It was as simple a matter as what college to go to. And he's, when he made a decision to go to a college she disapproved of, she made a terrible curse that haunts him to this day more than 50 years later. And, and I, you know, I found that that was hard for me to read because, you know, I became a Christian in high school and one of my best friends transferred from a state college in Colorado to go to Wheaton. And that was like, Wheaton was like, whoa, that's the yeah. Mecca. You know, Wheaton right. was the place you go and you're really a serious and committed Christian person. And so I always had that image in my mind and I was invited to speak at Wheaton. Oh gosh, 15 years ago, probably, but just being on the campus. And so I have this incredible, and ironically going to the C.S. Lewis room, which, you know, <laughs> you talk about your brother that Lewis was this, you know, persona non grata at Wheaton. But so that, that how your mom viewed Wheaton back in that time was uh, very surprising to me. Like that was a place to lose your faith. Cause for me, that was a school where you went to sort of like, if you were super committed in your faith, that was just a surprise. Yes. And I'm glad it's a surprise because I, <laughs> I think your viewpoint is probably closer to reality. You got to remember, we were probably a little to the right of Bob Jones University. <laughs> and Bob Jones, uh, of course, was decrying Billy Graham at the time, saying he was a compromiser and and you couldn't trust him. And um, I, we heard the same thing in our church. And but uh, Billy Graham went to Wheaton, and that was the stain against the school that influenced my mother. A lot of other stains as well. But um, I, I, mm. I would agree with you. It, it was a, a liberating place from the group that we came from, from the real narrow fundamentalist group that we came from. And I had a, I eventually attended Wheaton Graduate School myself. Had a very good experience there. And that kind of launched my career because I started in journalism while I was a student in the grad school. So our, our mutual friend, Kathy Helmers, who's your, both of us are literary agent, um, but she said, Jim, there were some pretty funny family stories that you know didn't make the final cut. And she said, you need to ask Philip that. So she told me that this morning when I told her I was talking with you today. So I'm just following up what Kathy asked. So <laughs> were there any stories, stories that didn't... You know, I just ran one on uh, my blog. I do a blog about once a month. You're supposed to do one once a week, but I have trouble getting one a month done. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I decided to use one of the stories that didn't make it into the title, into the final version. Here we are in summer and, and people are going to the beach. Every summer we would go to Philadelphia. We lived in Atlanta, Georgia, but my mother was from Philadelphia. So each year she would take us up to her family, which is kind of a funny story in itself, and and then also to her church. And then occasionally we would make little side trips away from Philadelphia. A number of times we went to Ocean City, New Jersey. It was a safe place. It was run by a consortium of Christians who had 99-year leases on, on all the property and who forbid the sale or even possession of alcohol. So my mother felt that was a safe place and we could go there. And on the way, one year, she decided that we needed a haircut. So she was just driving down a road and suddenly she saw a little white room, a white board uh, 
place with a barber pole outside and it said uh, haircuts. So she pulls into the driveway in her car with a license plate from Georgia and now we're in New Jersey and we go in and there are eight men sitting around in the chairs. And she says, oh, uh, sorry, you, you must be busy. We'll come back some other time. No, 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 you're next, you're next. These men are just my friends. We're just kind of talking. Oh, okay. So she motions me to get in the chair and this guy starts butchering my hair and actually cutting me. And I, I squirm and yell, ow, ow. I'm probably eight years old at the time. And I get a stern look from my mother, you know, behave yourself. You're just getting a haircut. And I, re I reached up at one point and felt blood. And I'm, I'm rather miserable. And suddenly the door opens and policemen with their guns drawn walk into this barbershop. And everybody uh, gets on alert and they say, don't move, don't move. And it turns out that this is not a barbershop at all. It's a bookie joint disguised <laughs> as a barbershop. <laughs> and everybody in New Jersey knows it, you know, but we're from Georgia. We don't know it. So uh, I finally got the last laugh on that one because they, they took all the, the men off for questioning. My mother had to do some explaining. Why would a car with Georgia license plates decide to stop at a barbershop in New Jersey? But they finally believed her. And then um, the, for me, the most satisfying thing was I got a little sympathy for the cuts in my head. And then also my brother, the people at the beauty shop next door who had stood out and watched, watched the, the men being taken away, offered to cut my brother's haircut free. <laughs> So, of course, I razzed him all vacation about having his haircut in a beauty shop, you know, for an eight-year-old kid. That's, like, that's as low Where as you girls can get. girls go. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That, that, that's straight out of a movie there. That was, it is. That, yeah. that is funny. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I had a lot of stories, family stories. The original draft of the book was 240,000 words, which was everything oh, wow. I could remember and then some. And when I finally cut it down to less than 100,000, so it's a little more manageable, but maybe I, I at least have this vault of memories. If I can't think of another blog to run, I'll just run one of those. <laughs> just run these. Oh, that's great. That is great. Well, your, your upbringing, your childhood, I mean, through the college years, I mean, there are some I mean, incredible stories and you're such a great writer. It's so vivid. I feel like I'm, you know, seeing there you're, you're great at describing the scenes and so forth. But I think the the overarching message that comes across anyway was that the version of Christianity, which was a kind of southern fundamentalism to which you were exposed, really marked both you and your brother. I think particularly you in some ways. And you use a word in a couple of places, ungrace. Hmm. And talk about the gospel that you were exposed to and how through your own journey you were able to, to begin to see another side that maybe that wasn't the gospel of Jesus. Sure. Those days were quite different than what we're experiencing now. For one thing, our church was not involved in politics. It almost never came up. The only time it came up was when John F. Kennedy ran for president and the church distributed pamphlets called If America Elects a Catholic President. You know, the Pope will be running our foreign policy and all these dangers <laughs> that never really came true. But um, we, we wanted to be separate, come out from among them and be ye separate. Do, 
Do not be mm. unequally yoked. We would hear these verses again and again. And that was mainly a separation of behavior, things we wouldn't do. Can't go bowling because they serve liquor in the bowling alleys. You can't go roller skating because it looks too much like dancing. You know, <laughs> uh, All these uh, can't go mixed swimming because your eyes might wander to someone of the opposite sex. And, and we had all these strict rules. But it was also, I would say, a fear-based religion. Uh, every Sunday and often in between, especially when revivals would come to town, we would hear about sin and hell and sin and hell. And uh, the solution to all of that was to go forward and accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Then you're saved. Then you'll go to heaven. And so we would do that. And then the next week we'd hear more sermons about sin and hell and wonder, well, are we really safe? Maybe we should do it again, you know? So uh, th that was kind of the, the emotional revivalism that came out of those Southern yeah. movements from the previous century. And we were a small group, but uh, a proud group. We thought we had the truth and nobody else did. Later, that started to crack apart. For me, one of the first reasons it started to crack apart was over the issue of race. Because in several of my churches growing up, we were taught this abominable curse of ham theory that the black races, African-Americans, as they ended up being, the black races from Africa were part of a curse. When uh, in Genesis 9, when Noah was naked and his children came in and it's hard to know what's going on there, but he's angry and he curses his grandson, Canaan, not Ham. Ham is his son. He curses Canaan. But somehow that got twisted over the years into this theory that Ham means burnt black and Noah was cursing the race that eventually became the black people of color, the black race. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, we were taught from the pulpit that that uh, black people, although they're very good at servant occupations or being slaves for that matter, would never be CEO of a company, would never be the president of a university. And gradually, of course, I found out that was not true. <laughs> that was, I realized the church had lied to me. And that was a crisis of faith, because if they lied about race, maybe they also lied about Jesus. Maybe they lied about the Bible. And in a way, that kind of launched my career of trying to figure out what what should I keep from those childhood days and what should I discard, what was true and what was not true. And that's what I've been trying to do as a writer ever since. Yeah, and, and your, your books, and I, I didn't really even think about it until you mentioned it, that if you just look at the titles of your books, you see there is a lot about, you know, questioning. A lot of your books have question marks in the title. Right. and. There's this there's this journey of searching, which once I read your story, I went, oh wow, okay, this really does, you know, make sense. Uh, you write about a hinge moment in in uh, in college that wow, I just didn't see coming when I was reading it. I thought, whoa, and and don't want to you know unpack that too much. I, I encourage every reader not only just to get this book, but boy, slow down when you get to this particular scene. How 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 did that? hinge moment become so profound for you moving forward? At the time I was in a Bible college, I'd been there for a year and a half, and I was kind of known as the campus renegade or apostate. I would uh, 
sit, we had daily chapel. I would sit in chapel and read magazines, Time Magazine, Esquire. And we would have prayer meetings. Everybody would pray except me. I would just sit there. And people, I would ask questions in class to embarrass my professors to try to catch them in, in their ignorance in some cases. And I wasn't a very likable person. I wasn't trying to be a likable person. I was trying to be distant and different from the people around me, trying to get out of that place and was planning to get out of that place. There was a softening, however, the, the title of this book is Where the Light Fell, which comes from a quote, quote by St. Augustine, who said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I was able to look on where the light fell. And for me, the light fell in three places. One was nature, the beauties of nature. Um, always as a child in a, in a dysfunctional family, my solace, my respite was to go out into the woods, dig in a log, find some beetles, chase butterflies, listen to the birds. That's what I did as a child. So the beauties of nature, classical music, I was raised we were raised very poor, lived in trailers and government housing for the most part. But we, we always had a record player and, and some classical music. And then my brother was amazingly talented. And so he, he showed me how music worked and how it affects your emotions and taught me about music. And then romantic love caught me off guard at the campus. Didn't really believe in it at the time, but uh, soon I did. <laughs> so those three things were very different than the image of God that I grew up with because each of them each of them stirred a longing in me there's a there's a quote I like to to uh, repeat from GK Chesterton who said the worst moment for an atheist is when he has a deep sense of gratitude and has no one to thank <laughs> and that's the position I found myself in I was I was grateful for the softening of nature and in music and, and love, beauty and love. I mean, you've written about these things, Jim. Mm -hmm. And and yet they, they didn't square with the image I grew up with of this scowling, angry, narrow, killjoy God. And so having seen where the light fell, eventually I wanted to find the light. I wanted to, I wanted to mm. meet the creator of those good things. But I didn't know how to do that. I had gone forward so many times. I just didn't, I couldn't tell the fake from the authentic. And I tried a couple of times and just finally gave up. And then the scene that you described took me completely by surprise. It was part of a class assignment on, on writing a, a paper on when God spoke to you through the Bible. Well, you know, I figured God never spoke to me through the Bible. What in the world am I going to say? And before that paper was due, God did speak to me in a, in a dramatic way. And I, I almost hated to spell it out in that detail in the book because anytime you hear a conversion story, it's I'm not setting a bar. I'm not saying yours should be like this. God meets us in different ways. God met me in very subtle ways for years before the breakthrough came. It did come and I would never deny that. It was it changed my life completely from that moment on but it may be very different from somebody else. My wife, for example, grew up in a Christian home, never really went through a period of great doubt and rejection. And many people do. So I'm not saying 
this is the only way it's not, but it was the way that God spoke to me. And it would have been the falsest thing that I could have done to try to deny that or not act on it. Yeah, you know, I, I think I've read somewhere that 80% of Christians are what we call cradle Christians, meaning that like your wife and my wife too, my wife was never not in the church. So she doesn't have a, a moment. And I remember she used to say to me, I kind of wish I had a story like yours. And, and I'd say, I, I like yours better. Like you never, you didn't ever know that, you know, she grew up as a child going to Sunday school and children's sermons in the church. And so she, I said, you, you always had the church and Jesus in your life. And so, but yeah, for those of us in that 20% who have a moment, um, it's not all the same, is it? It's very different. Yeah, I was going to say you're right. And when I would hear testimonies growing up of, I was saved from alcoholism, I was saved from cigarettes, I was saved from the army, you know, things like that. Um, I thought, oh man, they have stories. And in a sense, I was saved from the church, <laughs> which is a different story. But I think actually a lot of people go through that. I, I wrote one book that had the subtitle, How My Faith Survived the Church. And that that is my story because I was completely church saturated. We actually lived in a trailer on church property during my high school years. And uh, I I learned to doubt as as an exercise in health, to doubt some of the crazy things my church was teaching me and to try to separate the fake from the authentic and the true from the from the things that we add on to the story and often distorting the story in the process. Yeah. You know, what, what was interesting for me is that um, you know, I grew up in a really liberal Methodist church. We didn't go a lot, but we went enough. And when I was actually searching in my high school years, I, I talked to the senior pastor. I said, so tell me what it is you believe. And he goes, well, you know, what I believe today, I probably won't believe tomorrow. And, <laughs> and he went on to say that he, you know, he didn't believe in the resurrection. He didn't believe Jesus was the son of God. And I was going, what are you doing? Like, what, yeah. what is going on? What, what is this church about? And he was like, well, this is the church where faith and science come together. And so, I mean, I, I walked away from my church experience going, this can't be any good either. I mean, this is, there's nothing solid. And then I, I also had a, a pretty profound experience after a friend had me. Uh, it was an older guy. He was a, 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 a fireman, part-time fireman, part-time street evangelist. There's a combo. But he he, uh, he 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 knew I was journeying, and he just said, "Hey, let's read the Gospels together." So we read the Gospels, and then he had me read Mere Christianity. And by the end of that summer, I went, "I think Jesus is real." And so I did my own. You know, I knelt down and had a, a a prayer experience, just like I'd seen in the movies. You know, you kneel by your bed, and something really happened to me. Like mm -hmm. I felt a change, and. And so as I read your story, I thought, yeah, mine's different, but I know what that is, that when you mm -hmm. go, I don't have all the words, but I do know that my life will be forever different. And, and it was, and uh, I, you know, lots of things to learn moving forward. But at the time, I just, I need it. That was a hinge moment for me. Sure. So I, 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 as I read yours, I thought, wow, this is amazing. Another thing I think you and I have in common is, uh, you know, we've been really blessed by meeting incredible people um, that helped shape. I mean, that, I look back at my life and think, how did I get to spend time with Richard Foster and Dallas Willard and Brennan Manning mm. and all these, these people that so shaped my life? And but you you say later in the book that people like like Dr. Paul Paul Brand, mm. uh, who you co-wrote the, the amazing book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. I love that book. I love the title. 
Uh, but you took it from the psalmist, right? Right. <laughs> but, but I mean, uh, talk a little bit about that, about how, you know, meeting someone like Paul, I, by the way, I got to meet him briefly. Oh, he, a, he spoke at our chapel and I got to be with him for a couple of days. What a, oh, what a gentleman, what an amazing guy. But talk a little bit about that, Philip, some of the people that you've met that helped give you another version of the faith. Sure. I was maybe 26 years old at the time. And one of the first, the first real book I wrote, I was working on was called Where Is God When It Hurts? It's one of those books with a question mark and shows you where I was at the time. <laughs> because the, the problem of suffering was one that was a barrier to my faith and I didn't know how to get over it. So I, I thought, well, I'll write a book and then just research it, go to people who can help me. And in the process, I met Dr. Paul Brand who had a very different view of pain. He worked with leprosy patients in India and was a person who finally proved for all time that all of the abuse that, we're, that we associate with the disease leprosy comes because they don't feel pain. So for instance, they go blind mm. because they don't have that little pain cell that makes you blink every few seconds working anymore. So they don't blink, their eyes dry out and they go blind. They lose their fingers, they lose their toes. I met a man who lost all of his toes simply because he insisted on wearing shoes that were too tight. You and I, mm. at the end of the day, would say, well, I'm not going to wear those for another week. Right. I'll gradually break them in. He didn't feel anything. So he put them on the next day and the next, and gradually an infection started. So Dr. Brand had a different view. He said, thank God for pain. If I had one gift I could give to my leprosy patients, it would be the gift of pain. Wow. But that was a different viewpoint than I was finding in any yeah. of the seminary libraries I was researching. And I called him out of the blue and said, could I come interview you? And he, he said, well, I don't have a lot of time, but if you're willing just to sit in the hallway between surgeries and things, then sure. So I went down to the leprosarium that was in uh, near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we became fast friends. It was kind of an odd couple. I was a wild-haired post-hippie, <laughs> and uh, he was a distinguished silver-haired senior citizen from England who had lived mm -hmm. in India, but we, we hit it off. And he became a, a father figure to me. In fact, uh, mm. I recommend it to, to choose your own father if you've not had one, because <laughs> I couldn't have chosen a better one. We didn't have to go through that individuation and rebellion phase, you know, none of that. I just, <laughs> he was the kind of man I wanted to be like and be, wanted to be around. And that was a period of time, probably 10 years in all, where my own faith was forming and I wouldn't have felt confident in writing what I believe, but I felt very confident writing his story and what he believes because he lived it out and he was a man of great integrity. So that was a kind of an incubation period where I was letting my own faith take shape with this mentor and spiritual guide. He died in 2003 and I remember at his funeral saying, we had, a, we had an exchange, Dr. Brand and I. Um, I gave words to his faith. Here he had this, these great concepts and thoughts, but had never sat down and written them down. But I, I did that. I gave words to his faith. But in the process, he gave faith to my words. Mm. And I realized it was genuine and eventually was able to embrace uh, much more of the faith for myself and start my own pilgrimage of sorting through what can I keep and what shouldn't I keep? Mm. I mean, that, that is so true and, and such a part of, of my own journey. I, I, 
those people who are, you know, living this authentic life, you know, Dallas Willard would often say that the faith is more caught than taught. And you're with these people and they have this life. And then you're like, I would like to have that. And I want to spend some more time in your time zone. I want to be, I want to be in your mm-hmm. atmosphere. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to soak in what you, what you have. And, um, and that's, that's so powerful. Yeah. yeah, what an amazing guy. I mean, he is credited with being one of the people who cured leprosy. Is that is that correct, or am I pushing that too far? No, he is definitely one of them who was putting various theories into practice and figuring out which things worked and which they didn't. So in, in that sense, it would be true. Yeah, amazing. And the amazing thing to me, um, Jim, part of his humility, he was offered, he was a very innovative surgeon, and he was offered the head of orthopedics at Oxford University Medical School or the head of orthopedics at Stanford University. And he turned them down to work among, I got to say, the lowliest people on the entire planet. These are people of the lower castes, in many cases what we used to call untouchable caste, in India who had leprosy. That's the very bottom. And uh, and. You would expect someone who would turn down something like that to be have a bit of a martyr complex. Oh, look at all that I gave up. But no, he was thrilled. He was thrilled to be working with them. He found them the most cooperative patients. He delighted in the natural surroundings, learned the names of every tree, every bird, every lizard, <laughs> and was just a joyful, full of gratitude person and wow. proved for me the truth of Jesus' statement that he said, in so many different ways. He said, you don't find your life by acquiring more and more. That's the American way, but it doesn't always lead to happiness. You find your life by giving it away in service to others. And in the very process of apparently giving it away, you, you discover it, you find it. Yeah. Well, and he lived that, that is amazing. Well, you know, again, the title of the book, uh, where the light fell, I mean, it was so clear in reading the book that, that God was always pursuing you. And so I, I wonder, Philip, what hope would you say we have the rest of us who are listening today that the light will fall into, into our lives? Um, and, and where do we look for the light or can we look for it or does it have to find us? I think we have to look. Yes. And I think we have to listen. There was a book a few years ago by David Brooks. You may have read, uh, called Second Mountain. Yes, I love that And book. in there, he talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And in, in the U.S. and other advanced technological societies like ours, we spend so much time on resume virtues. Where do I go to college? What kind of job do I get? What's my rating? If you're a government employee or, you know, if you're vice president, how much money do I have? These are the things that we spend our lives chasing and, and the, the culture encourages us to do that. But funny thing, when you go to funerals, they never talk about his net worth was, <laughs> you know, right. they, they talk about he was, a, he was a compassionate man. He was a kind man. He was a gentle woman. She had a great sense of humor. She loved her children. She loved her grandchildren. Um, he, he loved taking vacations with his family. Um, they worked in prison ministry or volunteered for this or that. I mean, those are the things that last. And I guess I, I would encourage people. I had the privilege of writing 
a book called Soul Survivor, which explores 13 people who changed me, changed my faith. I met most of them as a journalist, although some of them were historical characters and I met them through their writing. And when I started out in writing, I wanted to be one of these uh, Carl Bernstein, Bob Woodward type investigative reporters, you know, <laughs> this was the back in the era I was right. becoming a writer. And that was, that was the benchmark. But I found out I really didn't enjoy mucking around in crimes all that much. I'd, when when you're an investigative reporter, you're around people who are jerks a lot. And I didn't mm. want to do that. So I wanted to spend my time among people I could learn from and want to be like, want to emulate Dr. Brand first among them. And I, I guess I would say to people, give some thought to that. Think about the people you want to be like, what qualities you want to have. And and when you when you do that seriously, it may not bring you directly to the Gospel of St. John, but it will bring you to the qualities that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere in his life. And you realize how hollow our celebrity, achievement-oriented uh, entertainment culture is. And the people who really contribute, the things that last, love and compassion and service, those things, those are the things that Jesus told us were the most important. And, and the light falls in different places for different people. I tried to identify the ways in which it fell for me. Some people will read the book and think, classical music, I, I can't stand listening to it. It's boring to me, you know. <laughs> but, but maybe you have something else. Maybe it's painting. Maybe it's, uh, uh, who knows, you know. But keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, and intentionally live in awareness that we're not going to be alive forever. Mm -hmm. we, we have this short and precious life. What's the poem by Mary Oliver? Mary Oliver. What is it you plan yeah. to do with this wild and precious life? Yeah, That's a question that. worth asking every day. It really is. Well, you know, toward the end of the book, at the end of the book, you you actually have this chapter called Aftermath, and it was another one of those did not see this coming. But you go on an amens tour, not an amen like amen, Jesus, <laughs> amends, like you're making amends, an amends tour where you're, you're asking forgiveness, you're seeking reconciliation with those you may have hurt along the way. I just, wow, that was such a fascinating chapter. And I'm wondering, like, how did that tour help you in your own sort of healing and growth? I draw the picture, the the metaphor, I think in that chapter of, we're, we're given a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle of ourselves, but there's no picture in the box to guide us. <laughs> we just have mm. these individual pieces with funny shapes. And then gradually, bit by bit, they fit together and you become the person that results from all those different pieces locking together. And I had that experience in this memoir because I, I had never really tried to stitch together. I had a lot of memories of scenes and, and emotions and events, but had never tried to stitch them together in any pattern of meaning. And it seemed so clear, as I say in that chapter, um, this this memoir, different than anything I'd written before, my, all my other books are idea-driven books. And this is not, it's a story-driven book. I'm just trying to tell the story. But in, in so doing, it became kind of a prequel 
for the other books that I've written. And I look back and the two themes that you can find in virtually anything I've written are suffering and grace. And now I, I see clearly for myself where those came from. I learned some important things. I learned that we need to be very careful when we speak for God. Uh, people sometimes very loosely say, God told me this, God told me mm. that. Well, the people around my father would say, God told me that he was going to be healed. And they were wrong. And he died. And he may have lived if they had not acted on that, that false belief, that wrong belief. And, you know, there's a commandment against taking God's name in vain. And it's usually interpreted as saying a bad word. I, I think it's much more than that. It's, it's ascribing to ourselves prerogatives that only God has the right to. And, and we do that a lot. We do that in judging other people. We do that in deciding what's right and what's wrong um, carelessly. And we do it in deciding what is God's will for other people. We need to be very careful, as Jesus said. And there are lessons like that that stand out to me now that I could never have recognized even when they were taking place. It, mm. it truly does become for me a, a way of stitching together the memories. And I, I, I found it a very healthy thing. My wife was worried when I would go out to the mountains and spend a week at a time dealing with some of these pretty powerful scenes that, uh, that, that involved a lot of wounds. And I would come back happy because I, I found that nothing goes wasted, that somehow God can use even the bad things that happen, as Paul describes so clearly in Romans 8. You know, he looks back on his life, which was full of, my goodness, torture and shipwreck and snakebite and prison and all these terrible things. And yet he looks at it and says, all of them were used for mm. my good by God, the two of us working together for all things work together for the good of those who love him. And I can look back and, and say the same thing. I, I'm blessed. I, I also tell, I want to be honest. So I tell the story of my brother. He can't say that. He, he lives wounded to this day by some of the abuse that he grew up with in the church as well. And I hear from people who, who tell me the same thing. And um, I, I, my heart goes out to those people. One reason I tried to be as honest as possible in this book is we, we get enough candy-coated stuff in the Christian world, shallow kind of self-help books. And life is tough. Life is raw. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. There are things that will never go away as scars. And to heal, I think we, we need to be truthful first. And then after we're truthful, the then God can help heal, and if not heal, use anything that's happened. I, I look back on my life, and I'm, I'm grateful for all of it, every bit of it. I, I really do believe that nothing went wasted. Mm. Well, well it, it came alive in the book, and it, uh, that's the amazing thing about writing, isn't it? The, the, it I'm reading squiggles on a page, and, and it's coming to life in me as I'm reading your story. It's just an amazing book. I encourage everybody listening to get Where the Light Fell by Philip Yancey. It is very profound and, and, and encouraging along the way. I mean, there's, there's rough parts and sad, but sadness, but there is so much um, that just turns me to, to God 
And mm-hmm. I just, I love that. And I just thank you for your writing through the years and, um, you know, just what, what that has meant for me and for so many. I just am grateful. And, and thanks, thanks for being on this podcast. Well, it's great to be on a podcast where the host actually read the book, Jim. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. It doesn't always happen. As a writer, and, I know. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and I, I just feel blessed to have spent my career. I've been at it, my goodness, almost 50 years now. And I feel blessed to have spent it working out my own faith in public, as it were. I, I don't write books for an audience. I write them to try to wrestle through these issues for myself. And then often I'm surprised to look around and say, and see other people who say, thank you for paving the way. Now I can follow. That's not mm-hmm. what I'm intending to do. I'm just intending to put that picture jigsaw puzzle together and, and find out where I should land because I've seen some of the worst that the church has to offer, but also some of the best. And yeah. I feel blessed to have been in that position and to be able to sort it through and, and maybe give some insights that might help someone else. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Philip, for being on this podcast, and I can't wait till I can see you face-to-face. All right. <laughs> it was a pleasure, Jim. Thank you. I hope you join me next week. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Ryan Smith, and you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things About Podcast, you can. You can do so on our website, apprenticeinstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.